The Go Forth Learn podcast explores the growing disconnect between schools, teachers, students, and parents. Through conversations and interviews, the Go Forth Learn podcast aims to identify root cause issues in secondary education and cast a more relevant vision for engaging an effective education for the next generation of students. Go Forth Learn is produced and hosted by Dr. Stephen Lang, a veteran school leader in both public and private schools over the last 20 years. I would like to welcome Brian Tonsoni to the podcast for this episode. Brian is a veteran educator currently serving as a high school social studies teacher at Delphi High School in Indiana. And Brian and I actually started our teaching careers together uh, many years ago in 1998, as you will learn um, later in this episode. But Brian, to start us off, why don't you give the folks uh, a little bit of an introduction to yourself and your background? Yeah, uh, my name is Brian Tonsoni. I've been an educator in the state of Indiana for over 28 years in the social studies area. And I've taught uh, middle school for four years, and then I uh, transitioned to uh, high school. Uh, I've been in uh, three different schools. I, I've been a little bit of a basketball coach at times, too, but now I'm, I'm just simply an educator. And, and that's my background was in business finance, and, and I wanted to help people uh, without uh, necessarily making them money. And, and I thought teaching and coaching would be uh, an area for me to transition to. So I made that uh, transition uh, the year I got married, and two years later, I became a full-time teacher, and 28 years later, we're having a conversation. Uh, and, and my philosophy is always, you know, a lot of student choice, student voice, and, and making sure that my students have some connection to what they're going to face when they walk out the school doors and enter the workforce. And what that looks like in social studies uh, or in any school is is an amazing uh, process for me to evaluate. Uh, th there's a lot of excitement in, in doing that, but there's also a lot of concerns and how do we get there and how do we best prepare uh, our young adults uh, for that next step. And so I'm, I'm going to guess, Brian, that you would say over that 28 year span, you've seen kids change a little bit, you've seen the world change a little bit. And but then as we were talking before we started recording our episode here, maybe school hasn't changed that much. Right? Could you reflect on that for a minute? Yeah, I, I just think, you know, every learner is different. And every age of learner or generation of learner is different. And when you add in a component like a laptop and a cell phone, which brings knowledge to your fingertips, what I ask, what have schools done to make that adjustment to make sure a that information is accurately processed uh, by our, our young people, but also that we advance the learning to a higher level than it's ever been before. And I just believe we have been status quo for way too long in the educational field. And there's so much out there that we can help these young men and women get ready for jobs, Steve, that we don't know are going to exist five, 10 years down, down the line. And I feel we fail in, mm -hmm. in, in making those adaptations uh, to the way learners learn. 
And there's a lot of things that bother old people like me, uh, the, the Snapchat and all of those fun things they do on the phone. But really, when I was in high school, I needed the expert and that was the teacher. And then I needed the library because that's where the source uh, materials were for me to advance my knowledge. That's not that's not what happens today. The source material is right there in the palm of their hands that they can get the information that they're being required to look at, but also just extreme vast amounts of information uh, about a particular topic at, at any time. And I just don't feel that we have in, in the education world have really made a significant change that really prepares our students. Yeah, I think that's, and that gets to the heart of the overall theme of this podcast, which is disconnects, right? And then what I've been really exploring is, is the disconnect between three specific groups that I think they're all interface, you know, parents, students, and educators, and now they're all interfacing in this space that we call school, but each of the three groups at this point, I feel, are bringing three distinctly different perspectives to the table. Uh, often people want something, uh, three distinctly different things. Um, do you see that or agree with that and, or disagree with that, you know, in, in any way? Yeah, I, I do in, in some ways, but it all goes back to what I say. We play school. Uh, the parents play school. They want their kids to be on the honor roll or get a diploma or, or, or get good grades. Um, the students play school. They're in there to meet their friends and also to, to achieve. Uh, and then educators are there to be seen as professionals and to move their school and, and have the statistics look good. And the one thing that's absent, Steve, is learning. Uh, the concern about learning and learning in the year 2022. And so it's a systematic problem that all three of those segments of, of the educational society struggle with, but I'm not sure parents would more uh, be more happy with an A than a long you know, two-page paper of what their, their student learned in general. Mm -hmm. uh, the student, what do I need to do to pass the test? The teacher is, what do I need to do to get a good evaluation so that I can get a, a, a paycheck? And we have the most important asset in our hands every day, and that is the youth of America. And so, you know, that playing school is a common in those groups, and, and they just look at it different, which leads to uh, a disconnect uh, that you talk about. Yeah, I, I think part of, part of what I wonder about there is, um, and, you know, you, you have, a, I think, a perspective as a parent and as an educator, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, I surmise that many people, I mean, teachers included, and really every, all three of these groups included, I think what's tough is, I think if you pull people out of the school environment, um, people everywhere understand that the world is changing rapidly, right? Yeah. Everyone gets this, right? I think that um, kids are hyper aware of that. Um, I think parents are aware of that, and it probably keeps them up at night a little bit, just in terms of wondering about how, how their kid's going to meet the world, you know, and these sorts of things. But I think that um, no one, or a phrase that I often use uh, in planning meetings and so on with my schools has been, no parent wants to feel like their child is an experiment. 
right? Yes. You know what I'm saying? So like when we go and we make these changes or we pontificate about what school could be or how we're going to reinvent the school experience, um, no one wants to go where no man has gone before because that feels like a massive risk. Um, I mean, do you have any uh, thoughts or reflections on that? I think you're you're accurate in in that assessment because the way education has been for so long, you know, if you get a certain amount of credits, you get a diploma, and then if you want to go on to college, you need a certain SAT or ACT score. And, and in order to change that and say, hey, we're going to focus on this type of learning, and grades may go up or grades may go down. We're not really concerned with the grades, and the parents, whoa, we're very concerned right. <laughs> with the grades because we want to get to that to that next level. And, and so that's the systematic problem. Uh, and that's where uh, I, I don't mean to be trivial when I say playing school, but right. that's the parental view is I don't want you to try something new until my kid graduates. Right. Um, I think that is, I think that is true. And the way I would try to sell it if I could and was in position was uh, the learning that your child's going to get in this new and better or experimental way is going to make them even better and more marketable uh, outside of these walls. We firmly believe that. And if this doesn't work, we'll try to do this because we're trying to focus on the learning. Right. I, I love the word learning. Uh, I, I told you, I think I fired myself from teaching about six years ago and I became a lead learner. Right. Uh, I, I think that takes the power away from teaching and it emphasizes to my students and parents that we're learning in my classroom. Um, the grades, the homework, all of that will come after the fact that we got to focus on, on learning. And that's a work in progress for me to make sure that it's done correctly. Uh, and, and I probably made some mistakes, but I want to focus on learning. And if all everyone could convince everyone else, all those players, right, that it's about learning and here's what we want to achieve. That's how you make that change. But that is a lot more difficult. Uh, I'm an idealist. And right. the re reality is a, is a lot different. Well, I think that's a that's a powerful shift, and I think um, a lot of what we do in teaching is emphasizing teaching, and it's actually not emphasizing learning. And we have to be mindful of that. But you know, I think that that's a great segue into really the couple of the main reasons why I invited you to be part of the podcast. One, um, years ago, we taught in adjacent classrooms as <laughs> Uh, and we talked about a lot of this stuff uh, over 20 years ago. Um, I think before it was as urgent or poignant or relevant as it is now. Um, but also I've uh, learned a lot about your bracketology project project at Delphi. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, I've watched that from a distance for a while. And I think that that project encompasses a lot of what you're talking about, which is a it's an ungraded activity, right? B, right. it is about learning. There's a there's a, a powerful set of learning that's happening for kids uh, in that project. Um, and, you know, when we talked about this earlier, you said something that I thought was incredibly powerful, which was it started with a question, okay? So I think for the, for the listeners, I think, so this is a, a, a super example, I think, of what can be done, right, or what we can do in a school um, to get at the heart of these issues. Um, and I don't want to answer all of the questions before you even talk about it, but tell that story a little bit and, and how, how bracketology, what it is, 
yep. you know, how it started and, and where, where it's gone. So bracketology is the predicting of the NCAA bracket, um, what seeds teams will get one through 16. Uh, it is our work is done on selection Sunday and Monday when you get the brackets in your office pool, uh, our work is done and we compare how well we predict that actual bracket. So that, that's the basic idea of bracketology. And it started with the question in 2015, a couple students in econ class, uh, we had IU Purdue fans, and we just casually said, where do you think they're going to be seated this year in the tournament? And I said, uh, you guys want to meet for breakfast and see if we can't figure this out ourselves and, and how they do that. And we were able to get started and connect through social media, uh, through people all over the country, uh, from Cincinnati, Ohio, Dallas, Texas, who helped us understand how to do that. The next year, uh, we uh, were encouraged by a USA Today writer to enter this contest, and we won the whole contest uh, with the top score ever. Uh, and that got the attention of CBS News, uh, or not C CBS Sports. And I'm getting a call from New York uh, about a producer flying in uh, Tuesday morning. We won the contest on Monday afternoon. And this is all for Little Delphi. This is all kind of uh, big time. And we've been doing this now for uh, eight years um, since that initial um, question. But the, the idea behind it is there was wonder. Uh, and, and I love uh, the, that word as well in education. What do you wonder about? Mm -hmm. If you wonder about, you, ha you have access to go find out the answers. And in the process of finding out the answers, you're going to pick up a lot of toolbox uh, items. I talk a lot about that with my students. We're trying to fill your toolbox so you can carry that toolbox with you. And so we have gone from just meeting and making these decisions to now publishing a web page and articles to getting media access to Purdue and Indiana and the Big Ten tournament and um, all kinds of media where we're taking students uh, to, to meet players and athletic personnel to doing a local TV show on a local internet station, sharing our information. Just had a student do a live radio, ESPN radio uh, bit. So they're speaking. Uh, there is understanding data and data tables there there is understanding conversations and decision making and what happens when your choice of the two seed is voted down by the rest of the group and how to handle that group those group dynamics we can go on and on and on about some of the academic things and non-academic things that are being done in a class that meets at 7 20 before an eight o'clock start to the school day and it's about basketball Mm -hmm. So uh, it's about an interest that that students have and teachers have. And and, and I just think that there is that unwritten curriculum because there is there is no formal curriculum for bracketology. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a heck of a lot of learning that that's uh, taking place. I think that's fantastic. So um, I think the other really interesting part of this is it's sustained. Right. So, I mean, er early success obviously helps get something off the ground, but you sustained that now for eight years. I'm making an assumption that that's been sustained, that actually that's been student sustained. Like, I'm sure you're happy to do it, but mm -hmm. you know, that, that, what would you attribute that to? Relationships, which I think is another whole part. And, and, and you've, you're aware of that too, is the club is not huge. Uh, we, we will have anywhere from six to 12 students and three teachers. And, and you get to know 
most of them very personally. And then they come over to your house and sit down here in, in the man cave and, and right. we have a three, four hour meeting. And that's something that's not normal in education either. Right. It's, it's, you know, bell ringers and exit tickets and bell to bell instructions and sit down and be quiet and raise your hand. Mm -hmm. And this is just, you know, real I, I, to, tomorrow afternoon. Well, whenever we're, we're recording this on a Monday, but on Tuesday afternoons, we drive down to the studio in the middle of the day, the TV studio with the student. And, and then we go out to lunch afterwards and it's a professional kind of thing. So mm -hmm. yeah, it, it's, it's been sustainable because I think people enjoy the activities that we do and, and it's non-traditional. Mm -hmm. And I really think Steve, that's, it gives a certain segment of our population, six to 10 students, something to look forward to other than testing and mm -hmm. papers and other things that are traditional educational methods. And I think that's why we still have people showing up for the club. So Brian, over the last few years of uh, working with the students on the bracketology club, um, what do you think you've learned from that experience? Um, that I think we, you know, in our professional development, we need to have some really deep discussions on what is a compelling interest for someone to come to school. Mm -hmm. And that's changed. Like, like, like I said, it, it used to be to achieve at certain level, get your homework done, get 95%, get honor roll. And, and th those, those ideas are still there, but are we matching up interest and in still choosing uh, what necessary academics need to be taught? We should never get away from uh, good, solid academics, but how we do it and the structure of the day needs to be evaluated. So we give people compelling reasons to come to school, uh, both teachers and students. But uh, since we talked, I, I had a young man um, who you would say would be pretty average, below average academically. Um, and we've just bonded. And the other, he was really stressed about his level of homework in a certain class. And he was really complaining about the teacher. And I was trying to calm him down and support the teacher. And then he went to a second class and said the same thing. And then he was just really struggling with stress. And finally, he said that something was going on at home. Mm -hmm. So immediately, boom, we're out to the hallway. Mm -hmm. You know, Everyone's got their work to do. They're going to be okay. Yeah. I'm going to be out in the hallway. And I just listened to this guy. And he, he's a pretty big dude, proud dude. And he was in tears. And all of that stress of that homework and all of that stress of uh, of the home situation, it just got to him to a point. And I was glad I could get to him and listen to him and be just a person uh, mm -hmm. to listen. And I don't know where that's at on my evaluation, Steve. Um, <laughs> no one observed that. I, I didn't write up a, a you know, meeting notes of that and send it to, to my evaluator. Right. But the stress level does uh, get in the way of a, the academic teaching you need to do and the learning in, in the modern era of where you and I want to take things. It gets in the way of that as well. It does. It's the balance between wanting to be there, feeling engaged, feeling like people care about you, um, feeling like you're part of a group. Um, but I think this concept of interest is really really something we need to to take a lot more seriously and I do not I think more than ever you know the one size fits all grinder is just it's not good for it's actually not good for most kids it's like you design for the middle 
Right. And no one fits in it. Right. So, well, when we started teaching together, that wasn't that big of an emphasis, right? As we started teaching together back in 1998 and, and yep. you had a little more flexibility, uh, in, in the classroom and in your curriculum and things like that. And then all of a sudden the, the evaluation piece and the one size fit all cookie right. cutter type, uh, ideas about education came in and now they've been in for 20 years. And, and Steve, I think that's a part of an issue too. You go back to the disconnect with the students, the students are so used to being told what they have to do. And, and here is plan do step one, two, and three, and you'll get an A instead of them planning one, two, and three to get an A. Right. Um, it's all been laid out. Mom and dad care a lot for them and helicopter them school now in their own way, cares about them and helicopters them. Uh, and, and then that independent learning and independent responsibility all the while we've taken that compelling interest and compelling reason and just kind of taken you know, it away. Um, I, I, my, my wife's an English teacher and a librarian. I think she's on board with this too, but I have some freshmen from Purdue university observing my class as part of their first year uh, teaching experience at, at Purdue. And we we're just talking philosophy. And I asked one class, how many of you enjoy reading? And like two people said they enjoyed reading. And that just saddens me um, as, an, as a reader myself. And I said, does anyone want to share why? And the one common thing they said was reading counts. <laughs> we used to love reading until we had to do it for points. Yep. And then the two people who loved it said, well, we didn't like reading counts either. And we went away from reading in the middle school. And then we just picked it back up here in the high school when we don't have to read at a certain level, we're free to choose our books. We have book club, other things like that. So that, you know, and I, I don't want to slam on whoever created reading counts or whatever they right. listen to your podcast, but it, what, 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 what do you do? What combination of time and structure is there to get these people to see schools as communities again? Yeah. You know, you grew up in that time. I did too, you know, back in the eighties, it was a great community and pep sessions and school spirit. And all of that's kind of mostly gone, uh, yeah. in, in some pockets is still there because there's, we go back to your compelling reason to attend. It is right. now uh, a checklist or a checkbox, a set of check boxes for parents, for students and unfortunately now for for teachers too teachers as well to get that three evaluation piece check this box did you do this right did you do that and you know what i think i would actually combine that because we've talked we've kind of talked back and forth or through a couple of strands here i think one is certainly community and belonging right is is huge but i think it's also they need they by they i mean the students we need to put them in real situations correct which is why i think which which is why i mean i look at bracketology as an as one example of that you know you've you've put them in a real situation and i think at least from what you've explained to me about that it's um a i think i would define it as real because a they're doing it because they want to right B, they're doing it because they don't want to let down their their buddy or their partner who's engaged yep. in it with them. Um, so there's the team aspect. And then C, it's these connections to the media outlets that you now have that are, are relying on you. And that's a real audience. And that's you're interacting with real professionals. And yep. no authentic audience. Old, oh, what's that? 
authentic audiences, authentic audience, right? Have to be a part of all educational yep. um, movements going forward. Can you get authentic audience? It might just be your neighborhood to come in for a learning fair or, right. or a science fair. We've gone away from those types of things too, yeah. but you're absolutely right. It, 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 ha it needs to be real. And when it's real, they take a little bit more uh, importance. Yeah. So Brian, are you aware of um, any other movements, you know, outside of bracketology across the state uh, that, you know, may be addressing some of these concerns that we're talking about? Yeah, I, I think there, there are pockets. Um, Don Wetrick from Noblesville High School is someone that I look up to and is just a, a fantastic uh, teacher. He's into entrepreneurship and, and his students actually start businesses. Mm -hmm. you, you talk about authentic audiences and uh, have gotten patents, uh, have, have made trips to New York City to visit CEOs, mm -hmm. uh, things like that. Uh, you know, I, I try to listen and, and read anything of Don Wetrick, um, but, but it's small pockets, Steve. Mm -hmm. it's, it's one person at Noblesville. Um, superintendent down in, in Kentucky that I, I try to find uh, is, has just started his school on fire for new waves of learning. Had a fifth grader map their town for Google Maps with a backpack and a, and a camera <laughs> because their town, they didn't send one of those cars or whatever through right. their town. And she wanted it on, on Google street map, uh, fifth grader, uh, fourth grader in his school, uh, started a dog food company and, and gave all of the proceeds to charity, uh, and, and was selling dog food out of the school, making it and selling it out of the school in the fourth grade. Mm -hmm. Um, it takes special people, um, with, with a desire to see, um, and it's, it's, I think it's Barry. Buddy Barry, I'd have to double check his name, but he said he sat down, he took over school that was failing, and he sat down on in a bar and put on a napkin of where they wanted to be and then planned how to get there mm -hmm. instead of how are we going to do step one or two tomorrow, then Thursday, right. those things. So what I find a lot in education is we put out fires. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're putting out fire here, putting out fire here. We're not doing fire prevention mm -hmm. uh, but by you know, laying the correct foundation. What would you like to see happen for high school students that feels impossible right now? If you had the napkin on the table. <laughs> I, I'm going to, I'm going to go back to the words that I use in my classroom. I would like to see complete student choice, complete student voice be the emphasis in every high school in the state of Indiana not SAT scores, not a number of credits for this type of diploma, this type of diploma, but our school is evaluated on are we promoting and scheduling and doing whatever we can at the local district to promote student choice and student voice. And, and, and however you want to define those words, but to me, the students get to choose some of their assessments, some of their studies, some of their pathways, uh, their voices are heard. They have a say so in some of our school rules and are in some of our things. Mm -hmm. But when you give ownership to, to their learning, they, I believe, will take more pride in it. They'll show up. Attendance rates will go up. Graduation rates will go up. There will be more pride in their work. Uh, I always uh, try to talk to our students. If I asked you the most, um, the best assignment you remember from your 12 years, what's it going to be? It's not going to be worksheet 7.1, the 10 true and false questions. 
-hmm. it's going to be the diorama that you built with your mom and you put the little cotton balls in there and then they weren't secured so your mom had to go to cvs and get the glue and it took you four hours you'll have a story it was harder work but it was a bigger accomplishment it'll be the wax museum mm -hmm. it, it, it would be the field trip uh th those things and so student choice student voice given uh, a base set of academics reading writing math science that need to be accomplished there has to be a way in our profession uh, to, to be creative enough to accomplish basic educational goals and advance, uh, to this, uh, time period. I, I, that would be, but I think it's impossible because of the bureaucracy of the state, the, the disconnect between parents, students, and teachers with the learning concept. Mm -hmm. uh, we all have our concerns, um, that, get in the way of true learning because true learning is hard to define. Mm -hmm. Like you've been very complimentary of our bracketology, but what one person learns, another person, you know, that there, there's not a curriculum of these seven things are going to be taught and learned. It's, it's learning by doing one person might learn promptness mm -hmm. uh, because he's not on time to this meeting. I have a conversation with him. Another person can maybe do audio editing uh, so student choice, student voice is what I would say, uh, to try to kind of put it all together. If we're doing that, we're student centered, we're learning centered, and we're producing the best we can do instead of trying to fit everyone into, uh, one form and, and calling it, uh, education. Mm -hmm. I would like to thank Brian Tonsoni for taking the time to be part of the Go Forth Learn project. I certainly appreciate his perspective on uh, student choice and student voice and providing students with a compelling reason to come to school. Certainly behind that is Brian's commitment to the idea of relationships and community as the foundation of a great school experience. So thanks again, Brian. We really appreciate you being part of the show. Thank you for taking some time to listen to this episode of the Go Forth Learn podcast. We'll look forward to coming to you again with a new episode in the near future. Thank you.